Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Chef Melba Wilson celebrates being born, bred, and buttered in Harlem with the famous restaurant that bears her name. She joins us later with the elegant, popular chef Eric Achipong to discuss the great soul food cook-off, an original series highlighting the tradition and versatility of dishes inspired by the past and present of black food in America. Plus, speaking of music, our series of local musicians in their own words today features Scotty Hoffman, from small reactions. First, after the Korean War ended in 1953, more than 100,000 children were orphaned in North and South Korea, which led to an influx of overseas adoptions throughout the next four decades. The film Geographies of Kinship tells the story of how South Korea became known for its global adoption program and the impact on those adoptees. In celebration of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, the documentary will air on the World Channel. Joining me now via Zoom is the director of Geographies of Kinship, Diane Bourget-Lim. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here with you. Diane, this film is deeply personal, as you too were a Korean child adopted by an American family. Will you tell us your story? Sure. Well, I was adopted by an American family in 1966. I was eight years old. I guess that gives away my age. (laughs) I was born in South Korea, of course, and was adopted by a family in California. And when I arrived at the age of eight, I was essentially told that my father had died during the Korean War and that my mother died giving birth to me and that I had no living family anywhere. Therefore, I was an orphan. So I grew up as a typical American kid in the suburbs of California. And because of, I think, the trauma of coming here at the age of eight and uh, not being able to speak a word of English and not having anyone here who spoke Korean, I completely forgot about my memories in Korea, developed total amnesia. And it wasn't until I was in college at Berkeley that I started having flashbacks, these sort of brief scenes of a little house in the hills, scenes of an orphanage uh, with children scrambling for shoes in the morning, those kinds of things. And at first I thought they were dreams or residue of dreams, but slowly I realized that there was something to them. And so I went to my adoptive parents and asked if, you know, if they had any documentation about my history. And fortunately, my mother had kept every single thing related to my adoption, you know, receipts for things they had purchased, you know, to send me to send to me in Korea, everything. And among the documents, I discovered 
the letters to the social worker that my parents had been writing, the social worker who handled my case. And so um, she was still alive. I wrote to her. And six weeks later, she connected me to an entire family, my birth mother, my brother, my sisters, aunts and uncles, and a, a very large extended family. So it turns out that I was not an orphan and that through the process of adoption that I became a legal orphan or a social orphan, but in fact, I had this very large family and it was a very emotional reunion. And I would say that that reunion took place in the 80s. So we've been in reunion for many decades. Mm. I can only imagine the emotion and the mixture of emotions. You had loving American parents, too. Yes. And in fact, your own story was the subject of an earlier film, a prize-winning film. When did you first discover there were many more Koreans with similar experiences as yours in the U.S. and elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, growing up in the suburbs of California, I really thought I was the only Asian kid growing up in a white family. And when I started making my first film, which is about the story of discovering my Korean family, the film is called First Person Plural, and it was on POV, on PBS. When I started making that film in the late 90s, I had no idea that there were other Korean adoptees. You know, I grew up very racially isolated. I didn't have any Asian people in my life. But after I made the film and it was broadcast on PBS, I discovered this very vast, large community of Korean adoptees all over the United States, not only all over the United States, but throughout the world. As I traveled with the film, you know, I met adoptees from, you know, Sweden, France, Italy, Luxembourg, all over uh, Australia, Canada, and discovered this really vibrant community that was just starting at that time with the advent of the internet. They were just starting to find each other. And subsequently, that community has really blossomed, and they're so amazingly connected. And now there are support organizations all over the U.S., in major cities throughout the U.S., and also in Europe. And then in 2010, I decided to make a follow-up film called In the Matter of Cha Jung-hee, because part of my experience was that I had been switched with another girl. My adoptive parents had adopted a girl named Cha Jung-hee, and they were anxiously awaiting for her. She was an orphan. Um, but what happened was that Cha Jung-hee was at the same orphanage that I was in, but her father decided that she would not be adopted and took her home with him. And the orphanage director at the time decided that I looked enough like Cha Jung-hee, basically put me in her place without changing the paperwork. So my name was Kang Ok-jin, but that identity was completely erased. My picture was put on Cha Jung-hee's passport and all of her documentation. So that was the confusion with my parents. They thought they had gotten this, you know, pure orphan <laughs> with no family attachments in Korea named Cha Jung-hee, but I ended up being this other girl with a family. And so in 2010, I decided that I would go back to Korea to look for the real Cha Jung-hee and see what happened to her because that switching her identity and in some ways um, stepping into her shoes and sort of having the life that was that she would have had had always haunted me. So I went back and met many women named Cha Jung-hee in Korea. And uh, that story is called In the Matter of Cha Jung-hee. And that was also on PBS. And by 2010, when I was traveling with that film, you know, this Korean adoptee community uh, globally had blossomed. And it was amazing to be able to take this film and have conversations with adoptees all over the world. And that's what really, I think, sparked my interest in telling this larger story about four Korean adoptees who return to South Korea in search of their histories placed in the context of the larger geopolitical history, you know, the history relationship between the U.S. and Korea. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Diane Borchelim, filmmaker behind the documentary Geographies of Kinship. 
Would you describe the camp towns that were created after the Korean War and how that led to mixed-race children who were often given up for adoption? Yeah, so I think it's important to understand that the Korean War was the origin event, really, of Korean transnational adoption. The war was fought between 1950 and 1953. It was the first hot war of the Cold War and you know, was incredibly violent. The US military carried out what many scholars refer to as a, quote, scorched earth policy, destroying homes, crops, sometimes entire villages. So the devastation was acute. And needless to say, the loss of life was profound. An estimated 4 million people were killed, 1 million Chinese, and 3 million Koreans, mm-hmm. the majority of them civilians. So this was the context in which Korean transnational adoptions emerged. And in order to you know, help the children whose parents had either been killed or who were separated from their families, various military units of the United Nations Command mobilized humanitarian efforts. So American soldiers built orphanages, gathered donations of clothes and toys, and organized various operations like Operation Santa Claus. And some military units actually took in children, including young boys, as houseboys and what were called mascots. It was actually these children that became the first Korean children to be adopted overseas by U.S. servicemen, by soldiers who you know, had become fond of them, had developed relationships with them. And when they returned to the States, they decided to take these um, children with them. But it was the appearance of mixed race children who had Korean mothers and GI fathers that essentially triggered the South Korean government to get involved in transnational adoption in a systematic way. And the camp towns were basically around military bases in South Korea. There emerged these villages that essentially catered to the needs of the soldiers. And it included places where the soldiers could do laundry, get haircuts, et cetera, and also nightclubs. And a major service or major activity in these camp, camp towns was prostitution. So because of these relationships between soldiers and Korean women, there were a number of mixed race children that were, that were born out of these relationships. There were also relationships that were romantic relationships, you know, between U.S. soldiers and Korean women that were not necessarily involved in prostitution. Soldiers met women, you know, again, via various services. It could either have been on the base or, you know, through whatever services you know, restaurants, doing uh, laundry or what, what have you. But in South Korea, during this period, the appearance of mixed race children was, was very unique, was a new phenomenon. And the children experienced tremendous stigmatization and racism and were abandoned. You know, many of the mothers tried to keep the children, but because oftentimes they were not married, So that was one strike, the fact that these women had children out of wedlock, or that because they were, you know, the result of relationships with foreign men, that was another strike. And then the fact that the children were mixed race. And the fact that they did not have fathers, you know, in terms of legal status fathers um, was significant in that the children could not be registered on the hojok, which is the family registration system in South Korea. And that registration is key to Korean citizenship. So without that, you know, the children, you know, could not go to school and would have had a difficult life there. That was more than what you asked me. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's so important to know all of this, Yeah, May 11th was adoption day in Korea. The South Korean government created this observance in 2006 to encourage domestic adoptions. How has South Korea rectified laws that did not support unwed mothers and harmed children, as you just described? There is a law called the Special Adoption Law, and that applied to overseas adoption. And through a coalition of Korean adoptees who had returned 
and were living in Korea, single parents, single mothers, parents who had relinquished children to adoption, as well as civil society leaders in South Korea. They created a coalition to advocate for changes in the adoption law that would provide greater protection for single mothers who you know, had the capacity and wanted to keep their children and create opportunities for returning adoptees to you know, find their families. And so there was um, a variety of different efforts to try to essentially enable single mothers or single parent families who wanted to keep their children in Korea to actually keep them and create an opportunity for unwed mothers who might be pressured to give up their children to have a waiting period before they could make that final decision. And they also institute a family court so that those cases could be reviewed before the adoptions were authorized. You know, I think that support for single mothers is still horrible. <laughs> the amount of money has increased somewhat, but, you know, it's not nearly as, as much as um, should be. I think that there continues to be, you know, activism in South Korea to create greater support for single mothers. The May 11th Adoption Day was a South Korean government effort to promote adoptions, but the this coalition or the Korean adoptees and single mothers actually created an alternative to that called Single Mothers Day. And that was an amazing effort that highlighted the, the needs of single mothers and to tr provide more advocacy within the parliament to, again, create policies that would support single mothers. Why was the Korean government still pushing overseas adoptions in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s? Yeah, you know, that's a good question because having developed as a phenomenon out of the Korean War, as Korea developed post-war and their economy improved and, you know, the country pursued a very rapid industrialization and uh, modernization policies, the country did become more wealthy. And you would have thought that as the country's wealth increased, that the government would have actually stemmed or ended the practice of international adoption. But the opposite actually happened. As we move into the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the overseas adoptions actually increased dramatically with a peak actually in the um, mid-1980s. And when, you know, Korea became quite, you know, was considered, I think, the 10th or 12th largest economy in the world by the late 80s. So, you know, I think part of it was, you know, it was, it was a military government. There was an emphasis on national security and economic development. And there were policies of promoting emigration of Koreans to foreign countries to bring in foreign currency. And adoption, you know, was sort of part of that. It helped to reduce the population in South Korea. It helped reduce the burden of the South Korean government to provide for social services for poor families and single parent families. And it also brought in foreign currency. What does this documentary ultimately reveal about how we view our identities? Is it based on where we're born? where we're raised, history. Hmm. Wow, let's see. Well, first of all, I, I want to say that Geographies of Kinship follows these four adoptees and their stories in the context of contemporary post-Korean War history. And as such, I think that their stories connect back to South Korea but of course to the United States. And I think their stories reveal the human relations that derived originally from the war and that continue today and show the intimate relationship between the United States and Korea through these family stories. And this is a history not only of Korea, but it's a collective history of the United States and our nation. And I think it behooves us to learn about this because it speaks to the human connection and the legacies of war that are complicated and that we need to understand as human beings that, you know, our human connections. 
Dianne Borchelline, this is an important and meaningful film, and your entire body of work adds so much to our collective history. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Filmmaker Diane Borchelim. Her documentary, Geographies of Kinship, airs on the World Channel tomorrow, May 19th, at 8 p.m. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment... Two judges from the TV series The Great Soul Food Cook-Off ask the question, just how much flavor, story, and soul can you put into a dish in a very short amount of time? Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. The revered food historian and scholar, Dr. Jessica B. Harris, wrote of soul food, it's a combination of nostalgia for and pride in the food of those who came before. In the 1960s, as the history of African Americans began to be rewritten with pride instead of with the shame that had previously accompanied the experience of disenfranchisement and enslavement, soul food was as much an affirmation as a diet. Oprah Winfrey's network OWN and Discovery Plus have partnered to create an original series that highlights the rich tradition and versatility of soul food. The Great Soul Food Cook-Off is a competition featuring eight African-American chefs. Each week, they create dishes inspired by the past and present of black food in America. When two of the show's judges, Chef Eric Adjapong and Chef Melba Wilson, joined me via Zoom in December, Chef Wilson began describing what soul food means to her. For me, soul food is food that evokes warm and wonderful memories. It's food that was really the food that people consider to be the bottom of the pit. It was the pig's ears, the tails, the bitter of the greens, which of course we know is the collard greens. And it's food that had to sustain us while we worked on the plantation. It's food that epitomizes history, class, sustainability, but it's food that also tells a story that resonates with its people. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I would say soul food is innovative food. It's innovation uh, out of necessity. We, uh, to Melba's point, didn't have the most quality or the highest, uh, I guess, uh, lauded ingredients or parts of the animal. 
so through innovation and through necessity and, and obviously needing to s- sustain ourselves, we made these amazing dishes um, and that's carried on through tradition. So it's orally passed down. It's one that has a rich history and, and one that we hope um, as ambassadors of this cuisine, we hope we are doing um, as much justice as possible. Okay, you both are rock stars in the field. Can you step back and each give us a little background on your culinary journey? Yeah, I say for me, I started off <laughs> uh, guidance counselor. You have that conversation after school or high school, and you're, you're trying to figure out what exactly you're trying to do for the rest of your life, or at least for the next four years in college. And I always was in love with food. You know, I, I think back to when my mom and my aunts and uncles would make dinner, uh, whether it be on a holiday or Christmas, uh, you know, Thanksgiving, or even on a Sunday, you know, Sunday dinner. They always had a superpower to me, bringing everyone to the family, uh, everyone in the family at, at one dining table at the same time. And I, I always admired that. So in addition to like being in love with like the technical side of things, I always really just fell in love with the the communal sense of what food does and what soul food is. And that's how I started. I, I really just kind of wanted to follow that path. And I, I fell into a rabbit hole of nutrition and, and public health as well. And the more you know, the, the better you do. Um, that was kind of a motto that I, I had that stuck with me. And that's kind of led me up to this point with you, Mellows. Oh, wow. Melbourne, community and food certainly go together in your life. It definitely does, Lois. And just like Eric, for me, food also started around my family. We would always venture down to a very small town in South Carolina called Hemingway, South Carolina. It's where my parents were born and where my grandparents had an amazing farm. So everything that we ate literally came from the farm. We now know the phrase farm to table. Well, before that phrase was even coined, that is what my grandmother was doing. I got to go out in the garden with with her oftentimes and pick the greens, the beans, potatoes, tomatoes. And we would take those back to the table. And that is where the magic started. The magic started as I watched my grandmother meticulously took these foods, these ingredients that I'd just seen come straight from her garden, prepare them for hours in her kitchen. And it's where we all sat together at the table, there was no television in the kitchen back then or in the dining room. And so family stories, history was told at that table around and over and over and over again. Every important situation in our family, be it a wedding, a birthday party, a, a, a bridal shower, a baby shower, and yes, even a repast, all of the important moments in our family happened over and through food. So food was definitely a very important ingredient in our life growing up. How did each of you react when you got the news that you'd be a judge or when you were asked to be a judge on the Great Soul Food Cook-Off? For me, it was an honor. I think it gave me the recognition of all the things that I was doing and to be noticed and to be, I guess, looked at as somewhat of an authority to at least judge other chefs. And it's it's funny because you don't really know what you're walking yourself into. Um, I think I can maybe speak for Melba with this as well. I mean, we came in and we're judging chefs that are quite new to the game, chefs that have, you know, been doing this for a few years and the chefs that have experience for over 20, 30 years. So we're coming in very humble, but, you know, you also know that you're judging folks that have soul food and, and they represent soul food in so many different ways. We have chefs from California, from Atlanta, Georgia, from uh, Northeast. Um, so there's not, it's not necessarily a monolith, you know, and we have to come in with that idea where um, the, the soul food that I know and I love and I grew up eating may be different from, you know, someone else's. So just keeping that in mind, um, it was very humbling to even know that we were, or at least I was looked at to be someone who can judge properly and, you know, uh, fairly off that. So it was exciting. And then, you know, finding out that I was with, <laughs> paired up with, uh, with Miss Melba, that kind of blew everything off the top for me. It was just, you know, such an honor because uh, her herself is such a staple in the culinary industry, um, especially in New York City and, and Harlem as well. So the pot of greens just got sweeter and sweeter. It seems like, <laughs> you know, and it just really kept kind of building into what we have right now, what you see on TV. Yeah, she's a 
Melba, I'm speaking about you as though you're not here. You are legendary. I think it's our forefathers that are and our foremothers that are legendary. As Eric said, I, I too am humbled to be chosen amongst thousands. And of course, when I heard that Eric and I were co-judging, you know, Eric represents the young Gert version and Eric carries the torch and we both stand on so many shoulders. So to hear that I was with the Greg, Eric, Ashton, <laughs> oh my God, oh my God. And I've always admired him and, and, and loved him from afar, but to be able to sit next to him every day and to also be able to learn from him was truly amazing. But when we talk about the other, the other eight chefs in the room, as Eric stated, they come from a multitude, a plethora of backgrounds. And um, who's to say what's right, what's wrong? Soul food is in our blood. It is in our DNA. It is a part of our history. It is a part of our history. And it is our job to carry the cornbread, to carry the greens, the fried chicken, and to do it in a way that's encompassing and to do it in a way that's respectful. But to also have our own take, our own twist, and our own turns. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're talking about soul food, you're talking about sass and class. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> you definitely see a lot of that in the soul food cook-off, without a doubt. What can you tell us about how the chefs were selected for the chef. the chefs who are competing were selected. You know what? We really had no idea. And I think it was purposely done from the production side where, because it's, it, we're talking about a very, not necessarily niche, but it's a very tight community. So, you know, chefs know each other, you know, and it just so happened when we finally saw all eight chefs, not only did some of these chefs work with each other in the past in some events, but I, you know, I know, you know, Chef Chris for some time and I'm sure Miss Melba has known or at least been following some of these chefs that have been working as well. So I think for the authenticity of the show, they wanted to kind of keep things as pure as possible. And they didn't let us know about the talent or whom or how many or, you know, where they're from or whatever the case is. And I thought it was perfect because we really uh, came in as, you know, as unbiased as possible. And I, I really do appreciate that. So I didn't really know too much about the chefs beforehand. But then obviously, um, with the six weeks that we were with them, we found so much about not only their family, where they're from, where we got to know their kids and, you know, some of their stories as well. So it was a quick education on everyone. I think it was done as ideally as possible. Yeah, I, I totally echo that, Eric. We had no clue as to who the contestants were. And just as Eric stated, I think that was the right way to do it. This way we came in with no preconceived notions, nothing. We didn't know anything. So when the doors literally opened, we were like, oh my God. And to Eric's point, yeah, some of them we knew, some of them we recognized. However, it was important for us to judge each dish and each chef on their own and what they presented before us at that time. And I think that we really did do an amazing job at doing just that. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with the chefs, Eric Achapong and Melba Wilson, judges for the great soul food cook-off on Discovery Plus. For people who haven't seen the show yet, can you tell us how the competition works? It's uh, two rounds on each episode. There's a soul starter and then there's an elimination round. Uh, so the soul starter is really just, I like to call it a fast twitch, just you know, within 30 minutes or so. How much flavor, how much uh, story, how much technicality, and, and really how much soul can you put into a dish um, in a short amount of time. And, you know, whoever wins that that challenge then gets an advantage um, into the, uh, the elimination round where one chef is, you know, obviously taken out the of the competition with each episode. So that's how the format is ran. And we were able to not only judge from our seating tables, but we were able to kind of walk around and kind of get a glimpse of where the cooks are at and what their process is, you know, when it comes to cooking greens or when it comes to cooking mac and cheese or whatever, honestly, uh, that the challenge needed them to do. So it was cool. It was a nice little mix uh, of everything and, and that storyline and seeing those chefs kind of compete within that format was uh, not only nice for us to kind of get a feel on, you know, how they are and how they cook and how they handle pressure, 
but then for us as well, like we, we got a really good understanding for ourselves as judges and understanding that this was a plate that was maybe cooked in 30 minutes. And if it had an extra 30 minutes, it would have been something different or, you know, um, whatever the case is. So I think it was a really good learning opportunity on both the judging side and the chef side. Yeah. So this show is like no other. There has never been a cast of all Black chefs on television before. There has never been a stage for soul food that was set. There's never been a table set like this one before. So with the show comes amazing food, great stories, a lot of pressure, a lot of pain. And what it takes us down, it takes us down memory lane. There's no way to cook soul food without going back to the roots of Africa. There's no way to cook soul food without going back to the South. So it tells a story. It tells a story of a journey. And with that journey comes a lot of, bit of, a lot of other ingredients. And those ingredients are spicy, they're salty, you know, they're savory, <laughs> but it does come with a lot of different flavor. And Ms. Melba, cor correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, we, we had the format and we pretty much followed that every episode, but there was also times where we kind of broke character. We broke, you know what I mean? And we, there was times where we, there was an education. I remember in the previous episode, Chef Alexander Smalls was there and he was saying something so profound where Cartier just like, okay, guys, I know we're in competition mode, but let's just break and let's listen to the tutelage and the knowledge that um, Chef Smalls is, is offering us right now. And, you know, it, it actually broke for the folks in, in the audio and the visual and the, the people in the background as well. Like everyone was just enamored with the stories and with the importance of what this show was. So yeah, we had structure, but then there was also times where, you know, we broke that out. And I think that's, that's what happens when it comes to soul. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, something that is not necessarily organized. It's something that you feel. And, you know, we got a lot of that feel uh, through the show. You're 100% right, Eric. You can't cook the food without telling the story. Mm -hmm. And his stories are so amazing because he was a professional opera singer. Did he give you a playlist to accompany the food you, <laughs> you were judging? Well, I have to tell you, that voice, believe you me, that classic. voice. And yeah, definitely classic. But, you know, the pain, the story, the history that goes with the voice kind of pairs well with the food. Right, Eric? I mean, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a glass of wine when you listen to uh, Chef Alexander <laughs> Small speaks. You could have your meal and then listen to him. You constantly just be speaking, you know, or just reciting the alphabet. And it's, it's just so poetic, really. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious because... We have a little bit of regional pride here. Half of the contestants are from the Atlanta area. Do you think that there is a deeper Southern connection to soul food? Well, me being from New York, I'm going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> well, then what, well, let me phrase it this way. What's the connection between the South and soul food outside of the obvious historic fact that people were mercilessly enslaved here. Yeah, I think it's really just the, a testament of how strong the South, and specifically Georgia, keeps these traditions. And, you know, to, to Melba's point, you know, we, we might have all visited the South. We all know, obviously, the stories and the history of slavery and Jim Crow and, and all those other eras that kind of came and passed. But uh, there's also stories of uh, folks migrating out and and heading to California and heading to you know New York and you know still continuing with these beautiful traditions these food traditions but now they're doing it in a different region maybe using slightly different ingredients maybe you know the seasonality has changed as well so I think going back to that monolith like we had you know a, a chef from Oakland California who's cooking soul food but she's cooking you know her her California staples and uh, she's staying true to that. And for her, that's her soul food. And really, there's there's nothing wrong with that. So I think it's a great testament to show how strong the South is. And with obviously, you know, four chefs that we're representing as best as possible. But I mean, I've had some great soul food in, in Melba's and that's right in Harlem. You know, I've had some great soul food in, in Minnesota as well. I have a great soul food in, in Texas. So it goes to show how Black people have not only traveled through the years, but then also have kept these traditions as strong as possible.
Yeah, Eric, I totally agree with you. You know, when I think back to my family stories of coming up north from a very small town, Hemingway, South Carolina, Wilson, North Carolina, as well as Andrew, South Carolina, just like they did in Africa, they brought a lot of their recipes with them. To Eric's point, you know, perhaps the ingredients may not have come from the ground like they did in South Carolina, but they brought a lot of their seasonings with them. And it was important to replicate this food that has sustained them here in the North. And they came to the North, why? In search of jobs. And so that they can better take care of their family members that were back in, in the South. However, a lot of the songs, a lot of the spirituals, a lot of their uh, church going habits also migrated with them here. And, and that's why you have a lot of people that live in other cities, north of South. That's why you still have that Southern hospitality when yeah. you walk into their restaurants. There are a, a plethora of things that they also brought with them. Mm. In Throwdown with Bobby Flay <laughs> on the food and, and, oh, listen to the chuckles. You won, you competed against Bobby Flay in the chicken and waffles category. Can you tell us what distinguished your recipe or the special ingredients for your chicken and waffles? Oh my God. So um, first of all, I have to say this because it's probably one of the questions I get asked the most. Did I know it was gonna be a throwdown? Absolutely not. Really? <laughs> no, they set you up so lovely and uh, Eric being on the circuit, I'm sure he knows about this. I'd never done a cooking competition before. I'd seen Throwdown, but you know, it doesn't happen in Harlem. It doesn't happen to black girls and definitely wasn't gonna happen to me. Um, but they set me up by telling me that it was a show called Started Here First. And because Chicken Waffles was born in, in Harlem um, and they heard that I had the best chicken waffles, they decided to feature, quote, <laughs> end quote, me. I chose to do my demonstration at Linux Lounge because of the historical value of it. And as I am cooking, Lois, in walks Bobby Flay. And I'm like, oh my God, how nice. Bobby Flay came to watch me. <laughs> <laughs> well, when Bobby Flay beside me and put the table up and said, are you ready for a throw? And I was like, oh my God. Oh my you know, But you got to be quick. I'm from Harlem. I know how to pivot, right? So... I'm like, of course I am. And I have to tell you that that is one of the moments that have changed my life, changed my career. One of the most humbling moments. And, um, you know, to beat an Iron Chef, Bobby Flay at Spur of the Moment, you know, it was just amazing. But my special ingredient, to go back to your question, you know, I'm like the home cooks. I'm like every mom that's out there in the kitchen. My son, right after Thanksgiving, he's an only child. So he pretty much told me what he wanted to eat. And he woke up the day after Thanksgiving and said he wanted uh, waffles. So I looked in the, in the fridge. The only liquid that I had in my fridge was some champagne, not, not, <laughs> not going into the waffle batter. I had some eggnog that I had uh, made two days before and I had orange juice. So, you know, like we do, we improvise, right, Eric? Whatever's in is going in. That's right. You know? That's right. That's right. So I, I made my waffle batter using eggnog. And, you know, my, my family being from the South, when my mom fried her chicken and my grandmother, we took a number 10 brown paper bag. Not only did we season the chicken, but we seasoned the flour. And we put that chicken in that number 10, 10 brown paper bag and we sh were like shaking and baking, baby. So that's what I did. I did what my mom did and what my grandmother did. And voila, I slayed the flame. Oh, yes, I, I love it. I, I haven't even heard that story. That's great. You know, with the way black chefs have been invisible, if not overshadowed throughout our history, what do you think it says about our culture now that you have these amazing reputations and abilities that are being showcased? I think it's, it's about time. You know, it's not like, you know, specifically the chefs on the, on the show, you know, these chefs, uh, the men and women didn't just start cooking last week, last month. They, they've been doing this for quite some time. Even the youngest chef has been doing it for a few years. So with all the hard work that they've put in, 
they weren't overnight successes. And I don't think a lot of chefs that look like us, especially that cook this cuisine, aren't overnight successes. So the fact that we get a little bit of recognition now, um, it's great, but it feels like a long time coming. Yeah, piggybacking on what Eric said, you know, we look back, I mean, we've always been in the kitchen. We've been behind the Michelin stars. We've been behind the James Beard Awards. We've just never gotten the recognition. Chefs Melba Wilson and Eric Achebong. More information about the Great Soul Food Cook-Off is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, our series of local musicians in their own words, speaking of music. Today, with Scotty Hoffman from Small Reactions, amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi. My name is Scotty Hoffman, and I play guitar and I sing in small reactions. In small reactions, you know, we are beholden to pop music. We love it. I think what we try to do with our songs is push melody and, and push the parameters of that song as far as it can go before we're all like, is this still a pop song? Is this too noisy? Has this turned into something else? So Atlanta's a big city. Uh, we've all grown up right outside of it. Um, I think we were really lucky to grow up outside of a city like Atlanta. It feels like a tight-knit community here, uh, especially in terms of the music scene. You know, Atlanta is mostly known for hip-hop, uh, as it should be, but the city is pretty, you know, agnostic genre-wise in terms of what it likes and what it's open to hearing, uh, which has allowed us to create something sort of unique with our group and with a lot of bands out of Atlanta. Well, Atlanta has wonderful venues across the board. I think my favorite place to catch music is probably Variety Playhouse. I think it's the perfect sized venue. I've seen a lot of great shows there. I got pulled up on stage by Vanessa from Pylon at a Deer Hunter release show on Halloween a long time ago. I'll never forget that. You know, I saw Stereolab there. I've got a lot of fond memories of Variety Playhouse. Also, the Earl in East Atlanta Village is one of our favorite places to play. It feels like home to us. The idea for New Age Soul came from a show on WFMU called uh, The Cool Blue Flame, which was hosted by Little Danny. He broadcast the show from West Texas. For me, it always conjures up all this like desert imagery, you know, he'll play old ghostly sounding like 60s garage pop. 
he'll play music from around the world, he'll play like old exotica, early electronic music, and then girl groups, like stuff like the Paris Sisters, who I love. I mean, it's just a perfect mix of stuff. And I think somehow the confluence of all of that comes into a song like New Age Soul. We released our third record, New Age Soul, in July 2021 on Sofa Burn Records, and we played some shows for that. We have some shows coming up for that uh, this summer as well. Uh, we started working on, on a fourth record, but mainly, you know, right now with stuff having opened back up a lot, we're just really looking forward to getting out and, and playing more shows. Scotty Hoffman and our series Speaking of Music. More information about the band Small Reactions is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Algerian-French guitarist and singer Pierre Ben-Suzan discusses his latest release, Oswan. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so... You can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.